You're listening to Bookmark, a young adult book podcast brought to you by Bookstacked.com. This is episode 41, and today we're talking with author Rosaria Munda about her brand new book, Flamefall. There's lots of dragon talk, so stay with us. And welcome to the Bookmark Podcast. My name is Chelsea Regan, and I'm a feature writer at Bookstacked. Today, I am so excited to be talking to Rosaria Munda about the sequel to her 2019 young adult novel, Fireborn. The next book in her trilogy comes out on March 23rd. It's called Flamefall. And to say that I could not put this book down would be a major understatement. I am so thrilled to speak with her and to talk about this book today. So let's get started. Hey, Rosario. Thanks so much for being here. Hi, thank you for having me. It's exciting to be here. (laughs) I am so pumped to talk about your book. So I was hoping we could start off uh, for our listeners who have maybe haven't read Fireborn or read it a while ago. If you could give them just a quick overall idea of the story and sort of the main characters. Sure. So Fireborn is about two orphans in a post-revolutionary world who ride dragons and their childhood friends, despite coming from like vastly different backgrounds. Um, and in a way, Fireborn is about them kind of grappling with these differences for the first time. So Lee was born a dragon lord's son, which meant that before the revolution, he was sort of set to rule because his family had dragons. And then they were brutally murdered in the revolution. He lost everything, but he sort of survived Anastasia-style. Annie, on the other hand, was born a serf, and she grew up fearing dragons, specifically Lee's father's dragon. And now, because of the revolution, she has a chance to climb and change her station. And they both become friends in an orphanage, not really understanding that they have this shared family history, but then now as teenagers they're beginning to work through it they test it into a dragon riding program and they're competing with each other for the top spot in the court and there's a threat of war from lee's surviving family which he's only now realizing exists so he has to choose what side he'll be on and annie has to decide whether or not she can even trust him and she's sort of coming into her own stepping into the shoes of a leader at the same time and so then book two flamefall is about the fallout from their decisions as the as the war begins yeah that's perfect And I think you touched on it. You've created this really interesting post-revolutionary world, very original and high fantasy idea with these dragons and and this world that is different than ours. But you've used some really specific references to the Roman Empire and that culture. I was wondering sort of what gave you the idea or the inspiration to combine these classic ideas and epics (laughs) with dragons and fantasy. (laughs) Um, I think it was mostly just things happening at the same time when I was a student. So I think like the sort of kernel of the idea of Fireborn really came into its own when I was like a freshman in college. And at that time I was an intended classics major. I ended up switching later to political theory. I've been taking Latin and Greek in high school and I was in a intro to Greek political theory class at the same time as I think like how to train your dragons to just come out and then I was, I think, reading Game of Thrones, like there were a lot of dragons in the air at the same time. And so I just remember reading Plato's Republic and I just became obsessed with this idea of Plato's Republic with dragons. So basically there's this conceit in Plato's Republic that, oh, what if we made 
a world where you select rulers as children and then you raise them to be good and then they become they become like virtuous rulers and they're sometimes called the guardians and they're sometimes called philosopher kings and I was just like this is a terrible idea who would ever do this and the idea I thought it would be an interesting way to combine with the trope of dragons choosing the rider which is a common sort of fantasy trope that you see especially with hatchlings and young riders and so if you had a world where you had dragons uh, as sort of the main weapon of mass destruction would it make sense to maybe set up a sort of Plato style guardian system meritocratic system to test your children before you pair them with dragons um, and that was kind of where the original idea came from so I do think of it as like a very like sort of Greek inspired story like because of the Plato but then some of the trappings of like the way the, the world is set up with like the names like Aurelian it sort of has a Roman Empire feel to it I think because that felt a little more familiar and so yeah so it was kind of it was kind of a unholy union of uh, Greek culture and Roman culture but plus dragons <laughs> yeah and it creates a sort of really interesting full original world on, on its own with the dragons which is always the best and <laughs> I love, I do, I love the trope of like the jack, the dragon choosing the rider. And then I think you've done a really good job in your books too of the dragon chooses the rider and then the dragon really does become a weapon for that rider. It becomes however the yeah. rider decides to use that, that tool that they have. And I was hoping we could talk a little bit more about the dragons because I love the way you've sort of created them in your book. And I specifically like that you have different, I want to say like, breeds maybe like types of dragons there are three sort of main ones and some other options we hear about but I wanted to know like where the inspiration or the idea for for your specific types of dragons in these books because they feel very original and specific oh thank you I'm trying to remember it's it's weird because that was one of the sort of earliest world building elements so it's like sometimes you can't remember how you come up with the stuff that started really early I know originally <laughs> <laughs> like originally they were airplanes that was very originally that was sort of before Plato before freshman year of college and then then they did become dragons and then I, I want to say like the names of the breeds sort of I don't exactly remember how they came about like I wanted to have one that sounded Roman like for a sort of conquering breed or dragon that came in that was not like indigenous to the region and then have these sort of more like like what's the word like I think there's like the old English like kenning is like the word for when you put two words together and sort of have this, this more like Anglo feeling native breeds like the storm Sturge dragons and the skyfish dragons and then have them sort of together have these three families that had different sort of areas that they ruled but were uh equal but together like balanced that was kind of the political idea and I think in terms of the military <laughs> the I, I was I was dating a fencer at the time um I went on to marry that fencer but also he had two sisters who were also fencers and so I was and we were all in college together so I was hearing about the fencing team a lot and and fencing they have three weapons they have fa foil and saber and then they would talk about the team in terms of the the squads like oh he's on saber squad or whatever and my husband and sisters-in-law are all saberists and actually, one of them is going off to the Olympics. Eliza Stone will probably be in the Olympics this summer. So keep an eye out for her. Um, anyway, so I just felt like it was interesting hearing them talk about these three squads and, like, different sort of personalities of the squads and, like, the way, you know, you had sort of different body types that would try to go well with different weapons and styles. And so I liked the idea of having these slightly different 
groups of dragons in that way. I think that's where the originals were like three squadrons came from. Yeah. Yeah, and that's something else that I really like about the way you've developed the dragons is it allows for the strategy elements of the fights yeah. to feel more like military action and mm -hmm. more like it makes sense for these dragons to do this activity rather than just we'll send some over there and some will stay here. It's like, no, we're this is more specific than that. Um, right. The, the different types of dragons really lend itself to that well. Yeah, I thought that was fun and, and, and also sort of like a, a, an interesting like political military extension of kind of the idea of like I don't know, like Hogwarts house like choosing your personality because there's like you know the idea that these dragons they have slightly different personalities too and like you know and you could have this element of uh, where Lee sort of basically betrays his his home like his, his ancestral dragons by like being chosen by a different breed so I, I liked having that kind of flexibility and then have it extend in a military way exactly yeah and it does really inform the character as well too when you realize sort of which dragon they've ended up sort of being paired up with and and what that might say and and what it might mean politically and and socially in the world that they've created in sort of mm -hmm. both communities and the dangers of that which kind of brings us to the next thing I wanted to talk about which was some of my favorite characters you have your world is very well populated there are many characters who I feel very attached to in these books <laughs> but I do have to say I do have a preference my favorite is definitely Annie it's probably not a competition I love her so much and I just, I love her development. And I love that we have, especially in Fireborn, this strong, capable woman who's who's had these difficult situations and been through this trauma, but is doing her best to come out of it, but also has mm -hmm. insecurity and is dealing with that mm -hmm. insecurity. Mm -hmm. And it's not always easy or perfect. Like she can't always yeah. just like overcome. It's something that she continues to struggle with. And then I think in Flamefall, it was really nice to see her come into this leadership position and mm -hmm. find that. And so I was hoping you could just talk a little bit more about cre both creating that character in, in Fireborn and continuing her journey into Flamefall. Yeah, I, I love what you say about her having weaknesses, because I think I think we're sort of entering into a, a period where people are sort of like making the idea of a strong female character a bit more complicated, which I, I like. I don't know, because growing up, I always really appreciated like alternate female heroines like Hermione who's just like she's so smart but she cracks under pressure you know like I always feel like I can relate to her having weaknesses and these sort of more you know just outright strong like no weaknesses to be found characters I couldn't really relate to and so I liked having a character like that but it was I think with Annie it was difficult for me honestly she was harder to write than Lee I had sort of grown up reading so many books that starred boys that in my head when I started writing Fireborn, like Lee was very much the main character. And it was actually only in the editorial process. I had an editor who I think knew exactly what she was doing. Um, and she sort of would push me to make Annie a bit more of a main character and to sort of think of her as having like protagonist potential, basically. So a lot of realizations Annie makes about her own inhibitions in Fireborn and sort of like her internalized misogyny or sort of classism against her own class these are sort of realizations I was sort of making at the same time about her and about writing female characters I mean about myself I suppose by extension and you know it was it was fun sort of like finally pushing her onto the main stage and realizing she deserved to be there and like then writing that realization into her and then in Plainful yeah it was it was interesting I kind of wanted to look at the other side of leadership for women and also just like, I guess, 
privilege as a scholarship kid because I feel like I was a scholarship kid when I was in high school. I went to a boarding school and I was on a scholarship there. And so I was able to kind of really always would tap into that writing about Annie sort of feeling like an outsider in these privileged situations. But I also wanted to kind of examine the way you like fail to realize that you are privileged too when you're when you're a scholarship kid. So, you know, she really embraces this meritocratic system, even when her even when it's like failings are kind of staring her in the face because it served her well, it got her to where she is. So I wanted to kind of have her confront that kind of willful complacency. And at the same time, like even as she's realizing she has these weaknesses, I did want to sort of look at the way, the sort of particular nastiness that people can reserve for for women leaders. Like towards the end of Flamefall, you see more of that. I, I was writing it like not long after, I think the 2016 elections, it was all in the mind about like kind of the way we, we evaluate women, women leaders specifically. Um, so that, that all went into, into Annie and Flamefall. Yeah, I love what you said about realizing that internal misogyny in yourself and writing that realization into Annie, because those moments do feel so honest as like a woman in society where you realize that stuff and you're like, why am I rooting for the man? Like, this guy is competing against me and yet somehow I'm rooting for him or I think he's better because of what we've all learned and what she's learned and how she has to navigate around that. And yeah, I loved in this book too, her realization that just because a system has worked for her does not mean the system works mm-hmm. and how do you fight that or how do you change that when you're in it another character who's sort of connected to Annie who I absolutely love even though I never agree with him is <laughs> the character of power who yeah. I would say he's like one of those villains that you love but I don't even think villain is like a fair word for him he's not it's like too black and white it's too like he's not evil he just He's like a very self-interested character. Like he really does go for what he thinks. And he has his own backstory and trauma and issues that he's dealing with and how he presents to the world sort of corresponds to that. But my favorite thing about him is you never like, you keep thinking that he's had his turn moment and he's like an ally now and things are going to be good. And then he does something and you're like, no, why? What'd you do? Um, And so I just wanted to talk about creating and and plotting a course for a character like that, where he's, you constantly never know what he's going to do next. (laughs) <laughs> power is a funny one because I, I was talking about him with a young reader recently and she talked about how she feel like felt like he had layers and I felt like that was a really good way of putting it because quite literally his personality came about in in layers in the drafts so originally he was he was just kind of a nasty guy like very irredeemable um a little bit menacing to the to the girls to Annie and Krista and my editors kept on saying I think you want to make him viable. And she meant like romantically viable with Annie. And I was like, I don't know, like what? And, but it became this sort of litmus test for his character complexity, like at the point where somebody's romantically viable, that makes them like an interesting kind of antagonist in a way that he just wasn't originally. And and also makes him more more than just an antagonist, which I think is a nice place to have a character. And so all of the, the sort of sequences where they alley with each other and they train together in Fireborn were like added in later as as I was trying to make power viable. And actually the whole idea of them training and her learning how to do spillovers came about because my editor was like just joking around and she was like, well, how about they play spillover together in the stables? And I was like, actually, that's a pretty good idea. <laughs> and so that was how that happened. And yeah, I think I think what you say about you don't know 
you never know what he's gonna do I feel like I've had these friends especially when I was in school like high school and college where you know they're I think the line in play ball is like it's like he's he's not necessarily a good person but she generally trusts him to be good to her and I feel like there are these people that you sort of form very close relationships with often like often boys and often like teetering on the edge of a romantic sort of situation where you're like I don't think this is a good person like I think I've always been drawn to people who I'm like, is this person a psychopath? Like, I don't know. But they, but I enjoy talking to them and they're a good companion, like comrade in some way. But you never do know what they're going to do. And often I've found those kinds of relationships can be very like intimate and like can end very badly. Um, and so I kind of wanted to explore all of that like, strange emotional territory with Annie and Lee in, in Flamefall. Yeah, and I like what you said sort of about whether he could be a romantic viable option. I like that he, it's not, that's not the assumption. It's not like this is a weird triangle situation. Right. I think there's, all of your characters have this humanity, but none of them have that, like, it's okay because they're the good guy. So, like, they're poor choices, or in his case, like, he says some very not okay things, many Mm -hmm. moments of that. Mm -hmm. We never are like, it's fine because he is going to fall in love with her or anything like that. Like, there are clear distinctions of, this is not okay behavior, but he's a person and he's a fully formed person and we're going to see what he, what he does next. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, right. Absolutely. I mean, cause I think, I think in real life, you know, you're not going around like labeling people villain, you know, like there are people you're sort of coexisting with, especially I think in college or in school settings where you're like throwing up with just whoever is in your dorm, you know, where you're like, Oh, I don't know about this guy, but you know, like, also, you can have a good friendship with them sometimes, you know, like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's all very nebulous and hard to define. Absolutely. And then you add in the, like, military element of what these kids are going through, and it's like, he's good at what he does, and unfortunately, that plays a part in it as well. Yeah. The other character I really wanted to talk about was the new point of view character of Griff. So as you mentioned, in Fireborn, uh, we got Lee and Annie's point of view. And then in Flamefall, you've added Griff. I love the addition of his voice in this book, mainly because it really like recenters the stakes of everything. I feel like to some extent with Lee and Annie, a lot of what they're talking about is a little more theoretical or a little more like touching on people outside in the immediate future of what's happening mm-hmm. whereas with griff he is really truly fighting for survival he is fighting to protect his family he is fighting to yep. literally stay alive um right. i was wondering if the addition of his character was something you knew from the beginning or if it was something that you added in as you were writing Flamefall, and sort of where he came from in the process of the story sure yeah i think he so the plot line of dilo and griff has been had been around for a long time like but the thing that I wasn't really expecting or wasn't planning wasn't when I sat down to write Flamefall. I was planning to have actually that third POV be from Dila's perspective, from the perspective of the aristocrat. And instead, and, and it was the same scene. I went in writing the same scene for the opening chapter where it's like Dila and Grip. So it's like a, like a, a dragon lord and his like squire who also rides a dragon. And they're meeting before like before the the triarchy like in, in a court sort of situation and I, I always pictured it being from Dila's perspective I started writing it it felt very flat um and then sort of on a lark I was like let's try writing it from Griff's perspective and I didn't have a great sense of and in my head I, I thought Griff would be sort of like downtrodden and sad because he's like 
pressed and then I started wearing it and he just was like very snarky and it was quite fun I think it was like this like a uh, backlash of, of, of sort of personality after writing Lee and Annie who are very sort of repressed and respectful. And so having this new character sort of come on who just sort of took over the scene in a way that like I wasn't expecting. And I don't usually talk that way about characters. Like, I don't know, I know some, some authors like to talk about the characters as if they sort of have minds of their own, but I really don't usually think of it that way. But this was the one situation where I was like, I really didn't didn't expect the scene to go the way it ended up just sort of pouring out. And Griff's voice always remained clear like that. Sort of like he just sort of marched into the story and and took over, um, which felt, felt very in character for him, really. And I think it is it is exactly what you say. Like, it's very helpful to, to remember, like, what are we fighting for? Because Annie and Lee can sort of get lost in these theoretical reads, weeds of, like, what's the lesser of two evils, which is not a super <laughs> inspiring or compelling problem you know and you want to kind of remember no the the worst evil is very bad no that's so interesting and amazing and I I love that that he kind of like appeared on the scene and was like this is this is the story I'm telling because it feels right. very much like that like he as you said Griff is a humble what he's called a humble born writer so in this other society you've introduced us to he is not of the aristocratic line but they needed more people to ride dragons so they allowed the serfs and the peasants of this land to present themselves to the dragons and they some of them were chosen and then he is very much repressed by this aristocratic group of people who have come in and, and sort of taken over his home so in a, in a lot of ways he has a very rough situation but he does have this like fire to him where he's like constantly pushing back and constantly finding whatever avenue he can to make whatever he's trying to do work and I mm-hmm. I love that about them and I love that that's like his voice I'm here because it feels <laughs> very much like that in the story and this is perfect because I actually wanted to go into talking a bit more about this new world of uh, new pythos in Fireborn, they were very much like the other. They were, we didn't know how real they were, and then they were real, but we just kind of knew they were there. We weren't really sure exactly what was going on. They were sort of this unseen enemy. And now in this book, we have a character who lives there, who is in it every day, and we see the full effect of what has happened to this aristocratic group of families who have been kicked out of their original home and and on and have taken over this new one. And I thought inter weaving their story with Calipolis's story and that of Lee and Annie and their friends, it makes it a lot more difficult to know exactly where, who you're rooting for. Cause mm-hmm. there are moments where Griff and Lee and Annie are enemies, but you don't want anything bad to happen to any of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and like you said, like the true evil or like the worst evil in the book is at times tied up in other elements that make it really hard to know which way you want things to go. Hmm. And, and you've also sort of introduced us to this, this great new cast of characters. I was wondering where you sort of pulled the inspiration for creating that new community and that new society that we're more fully thrown into in this book. Sure. Yeah. I'm trying to think new pythos. I always wanted it to be like kind of a feudal aristocratic colipolis if you rewound Calypolis to before the revolution, kind of a glimpse of what that was like. So uh, sort of one city as a foil to the other. That was kind of a part of the plan from the beginning. I think for, for exactly the reason that you say that it, that way you can sort of show this complexity of like, you can have these political movements that are pushing for some sort of larger justice, but within 
both sides, there's going to be personal tragedy. And so I wanted to have that sort of mapped out on both sides, even though change needs to happen. As far as the actual cultural sort of like touchstones of New Pythos, I ended up sort of the easiest way to like think about it for me was if an a sort of Ireland to Britain analog. So if Ireland had been at, at a certain point taken over by the Romans as Britain was. So the idea is like the Aurelians occupying New Pythos are sort of these former conquer conquerors who came a long time ago, as they did in Calypolis and the mainland, and they sort of are still there. Um, but there's these lingering sort of ethnic cultural ties that you see with the local native population of the island to the mainland of Calypolis, a similar language, not the same language. And, and actually, we cast an Irish voice actor for Griff, which I'm really excited about. I think he'll do great. And then the sort of idea of the exiled the exiled royals in New Pythos was loosely, I sort of borrowed imagery and symbolism from the Jacobites and sort of went down a rabbit hole looking at all the different things that they would use to symbolize the king across the water. I thought that was really interesting. So those were kind of big inspirations. And then I just really, really like tall rocks, like karst. I went to see back in the days when we traveled, I spent some time at Megara in, um, not Megara, sorry, um, Meteora in uh, Greece and the, the karst formations down by Guilin in southern China. And so I just loved these, these like tall, like strange rock formations. And so that sort of love made its way into this story. First, it's just a setting, and then it became a part of sort of the cultural values and touch points of the native population in New Pythos. Absolutely. And I, I loved that they had their own culture and I kind of I also loved how to some extent the the conquering kings like you said there really wasn't they didn't learn anything like I loved the truth of that in those moments too that they did not they like had this horrible bloody revolution happen to them and Mm -hmm. they still they weren't like let's try to do better they were like let's just keep doing what we're doing yeah (laughs) and I thought that was really an interesting continuation of that that story and Mm -hmm. I can't wait to, I'm so excited to see what happens next with those guys, because that side is a lot easier to know exactly kind of who you're rooting for, I think. Yeah, um, I think, I think, and I think it's helpful to have somewhere where you're like, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's helpful to have favorite. one villain where you're like, no, he's just bad. <laughs> like, there's no redeeming <laughs> right. quality, he's just right. evil. Um, yeah, I have been finding writing book three that it's all just very, it's more streamlined, like there's sort of a more straight sense of who are the villains, which I like. I feel like coming out of Flamefall, it was all very gray, and now it's like a little more black and white, which is which is a fun change. We've got a lot more to talk about with Rosaria, and we'll continue to chat with her right after this break. I love that your books don't have, like we were saying, like there is kind of, with New Pythos, there is sort of a villain that is pretty clear, but especially in Lee and Annie's story, it's a lot more difficult to determine who to root for. It's like, I don't, everybody's got a point, but everyone's got problems too. (laughs) And I love that the answers aren't simple because I don't think in life these answers are simple. I think they're really complicated questions. I think you've sort of beautifully captured that human truth. It's almost never a question of right and wrong. It's more like picking which of really terrible options is like the least awful, like which one's going to end with the least people dying horribly. And so I was wondering, do you ever find yourself rooting for a side or like 
hoping that one side does better than maybe you've planned for it to or, or is going to? I mean, no, not like intellectually. I think in terms of sort of my disposition and personality, I definitely, Annie's take on things always resonates on a gut level because I think I tend to be kind of like a grumpier, pragmatic person. Um, and I have a hard time like feeling Lee's idealism like I, I just I just don't have it in me but I sort of understand the value of both sides and the and the flaws like on an intellectual level so sometimes a big thing that helps me is just seeing how beta readers respond and specifically beta readers with personalities different from my own to make sure that I'm sort of giving everything it's it's due perspective and kind of just remembering elements that I wouldn't naturally think of one of the things that I've been pleased with seeing early reactions from Flame Vault is like some people have been reading it and telling me like, oh, I couldn't stand Annie. Like I was reading for Lee the whole time. And I'm like, that's perfect. Cause that's, that means I did my job right as far as I could. I definitely had mo it was the thing of like one chapter, I'd definitely be rooting for Lee. And the next chapter I'd be like, no, why did you do that? Like you ruined it. <laughs> now Annie's right. What the heck? It's so <laughs> complicated. And I think what you've done really well too is, is the truth of, revolution tends to breed more revolution and mm -hmm. the more you tell people that you're going to make things better the more they expect you to try to make things better and what does that actually mean and what does that actually look like um along with the new characters that you've introduced in this sort of other society you've also introduced some new characters in clipless who are sort of antagonist to the the guardians how did they come up in the story and creating that side plot as well yeah, there's a new character named Megara who um, is sort of a, a leader of a protest group and Lee falls in with her. And I really wanted her to be the YA heroine that Annie isn't. You know, she's leading a revolution and she's gonna like bring justice to the people, you know, sort of a Triss, a Katniss, and Annie just like can't stand this girl. I just thought it kind of funny to have this sort of YA plot going on that was like not the main plot. I mean, obviously the main plot's also YA because it's a YA book, but just that sort of like revolutionary plot. I think that was where I struggled the most because I think then I would be like, oh, but look at these ways that Megara sort of fails to look at sort of the practical implications of what she's doing. But the important thing was to go back and say, well, look at the ways that Annie sort of fails to see the value in what Megara is pushing for. Um, so sort of it took, again, layers just going back and making sure everything had that full perspective. Yeah, they're kind of great foils to each other because right. they both, at the heart of what they want, they both want things to be better for the same people, but mm -hmm. they're going about it very, very differently. And I like what you said too about how she definitely is a little bit more like what you'd maybe expect from a YA heroine, but because she's not like the POV character, you can see like, there are problems with that too. Like she's <laughs> got her own set of issues she's got to figure out. And I also just appreciate in any YA book where the people who are children are children mm -hmm. you still get the sense that everybody in these stories is a kid and they're figuring it out they really are 16 17 they're not like 30 year olds in a 16 year old body where you're like you're not really <laughs> that doesn't that's not believable <laughs> it's like they're still making the same mistakes that you would expect people who are that age to make and I think going along with that I did want to touch on I love that romance isn't like it's there in your books but it's not like the main it's not like 
Will they, won't they is the big question. There's like a lot of other stuff going on that these people have to worry about. But like, it doesn't mean they can't also have romance in their lives. Sure. Um, <laughs> the one I actually, I wanted to talk a little bit about, I think you mentioned it before. We also have this new romance that kind of blossoms mm -hmm. that I really love because as you were saying, it has this echo of the power dynamic between Lee and Annie but it's more solidified. Like it's kind of what might've happened between Lee and Annie if the revolution hadn't have happened and he had Ooh. stayed this highborn mm -hmm. uh, aristocrat mm -hmm. and she had stayed the, the serf that she was family she had been born into. So I was wondering if you could talk about developing that relationship between Griff and Delio and, and sort of those parallels between the two different worlds that these guys are living in. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I think if I could put it, conscious like point on it it was probably that I wanted to sort of look at similar power dynamics but then invert them in small ways so with Annie and Lee I think there is sort of this residual like the way the power is imbalance is stacked is very sort of tra along traditional lines both in terms of gender and class because he's older and he's a boy and he comes from a higher class so it's like in every possible way there is still this sense of her being having like a, a lower footing in, in their relationship when it starts and then I wanted to sort of look at that and sort of like skew some of those variables with Griff. So like you have him originally in this relationship with Julia where she's really the one in power and she's abusing her power and it's sort of like traditional gender dynamics damned. Like he's definitely the disadvantaged person in that relationship. And then going from there to Dilo, he like technically Dilo has more power, but because the relationship doesn't really start until Dilo like recognizes Griff's autonomy and sort of grants him dignity to sort of choose his own path. I think their relationship is also comes from a place of respect a lot like Annie and Lee. Furthermore, like I think there's this element with Griff because he's such a good strong writer, like he, he sort of wears the pants in their relationship, even though he comes from a lower class. So I thought that was just really interesting to kind of divorce these elements and look at how you could sort of reassemble them with different people, different personalities. No, absolutely. I agree with Annie and, and Lee. It's sort of this strange dynamic. They were always sort of competing for Top Rider and they were now in this world where in theory they were equal, but there were these like echoes of things that they couldn't shake or couldn't get rid of. Whereas with Griff and Delia, Griff is a better rider, but does not have the social power mm -hmm. um, in the situation. And And what does that mean in this world? I really enjoyed also the sort of complicate, again, making it really difficult to know who to root for, the complication of the fact that, like we were saying, there is sort of this greater evil in the book and this sort of like, these are the guys who are definitely not, we're not rooting for them. And Delio is really strongly connected to them. That yeah. is his family. That is the side he's fighting for. Mm -hmm. um, and so makes this question of what can Griff do even more complicated because sort of going against someone that he that he cares a lot about and wants to in theory maybe protect but goes against protecting himself and and the other people that he cares about and i thought that right. was such an interesting dynamic to to explore right right i mean deal is much further along the path of being sort of complicit in his own family is corruption than lee was you know like he sort of got off easy in a way because he he got out when he was younger it's a different starting point for sure i love that with lee too i think yeah i feel like we haven't talked about him much but he does have such a journey and <laughs> he's like the main character but it's fine um, <laughs> he does have such a journey in the first book about 
saying no to his family in order to to choose what he thinks is right and then sort of has this sort of has these like double great betrayals where he betrays his family and and chooses the the guardians and his friends and then comes back to find out that the people he just tried to fight for maybe aren't on his side as much and then in this book he's trying to stand by the decisions that he made and and the people he wants to protect and what that means and I, I do lovely as much as everyone else. I think he's <laughs> I think he's a great character, and I'm I'm very excited to to see what he does next. He just some of his decisions in this book, I was like, no, you're so close, you're so you're almost yeah. there. It's like a very like seventeen year old boy problem of like right, right, so exactly. darn close. <laughs> it's funny. One of the I think one of the things that I hear about the most from the first book is I think his most sort of seventeen year old boy moment where he you know goes off with some other girl because he can't get the one he wants and like so many readers are so upset by this very very upset by it I think it's very funny occasionally you'll have somebody say like oh I liked that because it felt like a teenager but I think teenagers are like no that wasn't good (laughs) it's it's a great it's a great uh I don't know Rorschach test of what people look for in characters there is definitely a strong desire as you're reading it I love because there's always that thing in in books where there are two characters where you're like, I know they're supposed to be together. Like they clearly and they clearly have feelings for each other and it clearly would be great, but they're being kept apart. And I think sometimes that can feel arbitrary, like trying to extend the storyline. But I love that in your book, it doesn't. It's like, no, there are actual real problems they have to solve and they're actually on different sides of a lot of issues. And they've got to they've got to figure it out. But yes, I do think there were there are definitely a couple moments where you're like, Lee, come on, just (laughs) get it together. (laughs) Yeah, it's been fun writing. I think writing book three because I feel like he kind of gets it together. So it's like, yay. (laughs) Annie deserves it. (laughs) She's she's put up with a lot of his nonsense. Right, right. (laughs) <laughs> crazy and I love that you still he still doesn't lose though I think there were a couple moments in this book that I just really appreciated where he still doesn't lose that feeling of like you can never completely get away from the trauma of his past and the beginning of his life and he has these moments where he realizes that things feel reminiscent of that and how does he deal or how does he like find some source of being okay and and how does Annie kind of contribute to that it just it all feels yeah. so much more sort of complicated in like a great way, which I love, than just like two people being kept apart for like no particular reason other than like it's not time yet. Um, <laughs> yeah. But well, I think I mean yeah, it's it's funny. I always feel like it would make sense for them like never to end up together because you know they do have this pretty twisted past. It's funny when people sense emotions. I think they think okay, that means that it's an OTP. Like they have to get together. So which is not to say I mean. Sorry, I don't mean to say anything either way that's spoilery about book three. It's also, I, I find it very important to portray characters who maybe they had trauma that they're sort of still recovering from in many ways that they'll never entirely be recovered from, but that they don't really let define them. So I like, I like sort of having that element of strength in both Annie and Lee. Absolutely. There's never sort of that moment where they're, because I don't think that's that's true that we we never have a moment where we're like and I'm good like and everything's fine and it's yeah. all in the past it's yeah. it's still a part of who they are and and has shaped them into who they are but how do you move forward and how do you figure out what comes next so actually the last thing I wanted to touch on I love that your story really is about 
what comes after revolution. I feel like a lot of times YA are really focused on on the revolution, and then it's kind of like, and then we made a better society, and it was all good. Um, <laughs> whereas your story really is, is like, no, the revolution's already happened. Like, this is what comes next. This mm -hmm. is what building the new society looks like. And in Flamefall, we really get to see these sort of young characters have to deal with the question of how do you create change that brings about something better rather than just a change of power or an exchange of the keys? I feel like that's a question that readers can really take into the real world of, yes, we can all agree that something isn't right or that something needs to change, but how do we practically make it better? And I was wondering if there's anything you hope that readers can take away from your books and from your stories. I always hesitate on these questions because I always feel like, you know, you want the work to kind of speak for itself. And I think it it says different things to different people as the goal, I think, for me. But I guess if I had to say one thing that I would observe that I think is important that I hope I hope readers would notice is that I think Annie and Lee both kind of learn in Playful especially that like perfection is the enemy of the good, right? Like they have to learn to compromise. And that's when when things start really happening in their city for the better is when they both figure out how to compromise. I think these days there's like a lot of talk where people are like, I'm done compromising. And that's kind of the the energy you hear from across the political spectrum. You know, thinking about all this, observing everything as political theory major, you know, that's worrying. It's it's the sign of like a breakdown of the institution itself almost. And it doesn't lead to progress as much as deadlock. And so when I'm thinking about these things, I, I just hope the idea of compromise becomes something that we celebrate again. And I think that is definitely a message very front and center in Flamefall. I like what you said that sort of everyone gets different things out of books. Sort of along with that too, what your book does really well is this idea of there are these people who you are like, that is wrong on a moral level. Like mm -hmm. the new Pythos aristocrats, it's not okay what they're doing to people. Mm -hmm. That we can all agree is wrong. Yeah. But these other questions that are coming up do require some kind of compromise and do mm -hmm. require some kind of working together, figuring out what the better solution is. Mm -hmm. um, and those two things can exist at the same time. And you can exactly. be fighting those wars on different fronts. And I also, I really like in this book that you brought in the question too of trusting your instincts. I think especially with Annie and, and trusting when something doesn't feel right, maybe mm -hmm. you should examine why that is and mm -hmm. and not just trust what's come before but but figure out what what comes next and I I loved those moments with her again I just love Annie I think she's great I'm glad she's, oh thank she's so happy yeah. yeah but I love I love that that message in there so where can our listeners learn more about you and your books they can find me on my website, rosariamunda.com, or on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram, more on Instagram. My handle for both is rosariamunda. Thank you so much for being with us today. It was so nice to talk to you about Flamefall, which, again, comes out March 23rd. Thank you, Chelsea. It was so much fun. Absolutely. And thanks, all of you, for listening. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. We're at bookmarkedya. You can also follow Bookstacked on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like the show, don't forget to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcast. And you can follow me on Instagram. I'm at Plucky Bookmark. I hope you guys enjoyed the show, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.